Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be reviewing Labour's successful party conference in Liverpool and look forward to the Conservatives' annual gathering in Birmingham. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, chief political correspondent Jim Picard and our deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. So Labour had its annual conference and it was a surprising success. Instead of infighting over Brexit and anti-Semitism, there was still some of that, it overall managed to deliver an even more radical economic message as well as some successful speeches from Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. For the first time, they seemed to be a party that was ready to enter government and they've put run on the Conservatives, at least in the battle of ideas. So Jim Picard, like me, you've been to all of the Labour conferences since Jeremy Corbyn became leader and the one over the past few days did seem to be markedly different to the others there was less bickering within the party from the moderates although Brexit was still there and you very much got the sense this is Jeremy Corbyn's party he is now in control and they absolutely still love him yeah exactly I mean what what has become more clear to the moderates or right wings or whatever you want to call them is that if you control the leadership the power spreads out through the party and they've gradually taken over the National Executive Committee, they've taken over the Shadow Cabinet, they've taken over the party machinery, the party's HQ in Victoria Street. And, and yes, it very much is a party now built in Jeremy Corbyn's image, which leaves the MPs with all sorts of difficult choices in the years ahead. I think we should step back and just remember, though, that having a successful conference in terms of everyone looking reasonably united and not arguing and having interesting policy and everything else is all well and good, but when you look at the opinion polls and they are a better guide, albeit imperfect, than any other guides, let us not forget that only one in five British people seem to want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister and that this latest poll in the Times, I think, put the Tories six points ahead. This is the paradox you've got here, that Jeremy Corbyn is still a Marmite figure outside the conference hall, that some people love him, but an awful lot of British people don't love him or are still very unsure about him. But when you were within the convention in Liverpool, there was complete adulteration, possibly even more so in the first two conferences when he was leader. Yeah, and he looks more confident. I mean, let's be honest. I think there's a sense whereby the more seriously people have started take these guys who, let's not forget, were in the political wilderness for 30 or 40 years. The more seriously people have taken them, they are starting to take themselves more seriously. I remember talking to someone very close to Jeremy Corbyn when he first became leader, and the person said to me, it feels a little bit like a Cinderella going to the ball, and any moment the wheels could come off and this whole thing could collapse. They've been in a state of suspended disbelief 
for a very long time. They've had some serious danger points, for example, when nearly all MPs begged Corbyn to go just after the referendum when they had the so-called chicken coup. Um, so they couldn't really believe it themselves. And only now do you get the sense that they can actually smell power. They feel like they could be on the threshold of power in Downing Street, making big decisions in months or years. You then have to take this reality check and say, well, if that's the case, why are they not particularly pulling any better than Ed Miliband, say, at this stage in the cycle? Robert Shimsley, this was your first Labour conference after, I think, almost a 10-year break, if I'm right. How did you find this compared to the Labour conferences in the pomp of the new Labour era? Well, I mean, the irony is that in some ways it's very similar, in some ways very different. The difference, the primary one, is the one that Jim's already mentioned, which is that the people who were on the margins are now the people who are in charge. It's also much bigger. I mean, this was a huge conference, a hell of a lot of people. I think it was something like 13,000 delegate passes issue. That's a huge number for a party conference. On the other hand, you also have this sense of, rather like Blair, there's a supreme leader and getting his way. And there were all kinds of small stitch-ups taking place, votes that were supposed to happen that the leadership didn't want suddenly disappeared off the ballot paper or the conference agenda. Uh, the Brexit position was hammered out in something like a five-hour meeting. I was going to say in a smoke-filled room. It's probably a vape-filled room these days. But hammered out to the point where it was almost meaningless. And you have that sense of a leadership with an iron grip on the party and with allies in all the key voting sections to make sure it doesn't get too terribly challenged. And that actually was terribly familiar from the Blairite era. So when you looked at one of those key things there, which was Brexit, there's a lot of talk in the run-up to conference, would Labour back a second referendum, a so-called people's vote on whatever Brexit deal Theresa May comes back with? And one by one, most of the trade unions have been falling behind that. There was a big poll that came out that said 86% of Labour members now back a people's vote. But crucially, two figures didn't. One is Len McCluskey, who is leader of the Unite Union, the key power broker behind the Corbyn project, and Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn himself, he's a long-term Eurosceptic and the sense still remains he's secretly pretty happy with Brexit and doesn't want to overturn it. And you said there was this long meeting and the party has backed a motion which essentially said Remain is not off the table, but nor is it particularly on the table either. Yeah, that's exactly right. That led to some tension because... Keir Starmer, the Brexit spokesman, then kicked up about the fact that people like John McDonnell were going on the radio and saying, well, I don't think we could have Remain as one of the options. And in fact, it it rather looks like Keir Starmer forced the issue because when the text of his speech, the Labour Party conference appeared, it didn't have anything about Remain being an option that had to be on a ballot paper in a second referendum. But when he gave the speech, he absolutely said it in the hall. But he still only said that it's an option, not that it should definitely be done. And I think Labour is right to leave every option on the table. But it also knows that the more it creates a position in which something which could stop Brexit could be its own place where it falls, it makes it easier for Theresa May to pull her troops into line. So they're walking quite a difficult tightrope. And I think the Labour position is spectacularly cynical on Brexit. It's got six tests, which it says Theresa May would have to meet. Which are never meetable. Which are unmeetable tests. It wants to retain every single benefit of being in the EU without any of the disadvantages. It maybe wants a referendum, maybe it doesn't. It keeps calling for a general election, which its own shadow cabinet members acknowledge is not really a viable option because the Tories aren't going to vote to bring themselves down. It's just rhetoric. Labour's position is tremendously cynical. Having said which, it may not be stupid. I think that they only have to look less enthusiastic about Brexit for them to shore up their vote. I found it quite amusing that there were headlines saying Keir Starmer has slapped down John McDonnell yes, over Brexit policy when yeah, we all know that John McDonnell is in charge of the party and Keir Starmer very much isn't. 
But it's also true, Marina Hyde at The Guardian compared their Brexit policy to one of those block pictures where people can see whatever they like into it. And they do kind of quite like it that way. And it was interesting to watch for about four days. We had all sorts of headlines claiming that the Labour position on the second referendum was moving and that things had changed during the course of Labour conference. Don't forget that for six months, a second referendum has been a possibility. A second referendum that could include Remain has been a possibility. Absolutely nothing has changed on that front. The one thing that has changed and which got less publicity and coverage was in Corbyn's speech, where he actually said to Theresa May, previously they said that there was almost no circumstances where they would back a deal because it would have to meet the six tests, one of which is to have the same benefits that we already get from the customs union single market, which everyone knows is virtually impossible. And instead, Corbyn said, if you can do something that allows us to stay in the customs union, then we will vote for it. And that interestingly, is a bit of a change in position on their red lines. I can't remember what Barry Gardner said. Was it a flexing or a bending of the red lines? I think that's them trying to tell their Leave voters, you may have heard all this stuff about us planning a second referendum, but actually we're not blockers and we do want Brexit to happen after all. Now, Jim, the big policy announced in this conference was one you spent many days getting your head around and explaining in fantastic detail to FT readers, which was John McDonald's shared ownership thing. So can you give us a pre-see of the policy and the challenges of it? Okay, so in headline form, Labour government is planning to seize 10% of your company and hand it to the proletariat. If you look at it like that, it's an absolutely enormous policy. It's completely historic. No one's tried to do anything like this in Britain before. I think they got away with it not being on lots of front pages at the start of the week because it was announced in a fairly anodyne way, which made it just sound like these nice socialist guys are going to get you to sort of give up 1% of any company over 250 workers, 1% a year for 10 years, very, very gradualist. And who wouldn't want the workers to have a stake in their company and therefore be incentivized to work harder? And maybe this would tackle Britain's productivity problem. So far, so good. But when you look at it through the opposite end of the telescope, which is that we have a situation where British industry has already on the back foot because of Brexit, worried about a potential hard Brexit or Canada deal, where barriers to trade become harder, barriers to investment become more difficult, potential inward investment less likely. And you come up with a policy like this and business very much alarmed, I would say, to sum up their reaction to it. And the other thing about this policy is that when you look to the weeds of the detail on how it would work, there are an awful lot of complications, such as they basically admit it would be almost impossible to enforce for private companies. They also said that it wouldn't apply to foreign companies with UK subsidiaries, which leaves the question of why would the Labour Party want to impose this policy on, let's say, struggling high street retailers such as Debenhams or Next, and yet Amazon which already has all sorts of advantages, such as not needing to pay business rates, Amazon would be exempt. So I think they they see it as a kind of opening pitch, and they want to consult, and to be fair to them, they will iron out some of these difficulties as we go ahead. But it's a very radical policy, and the other point to make about it is that it, by default, brackets deliberately, after a certain period, because there's a cap on what workers would get in terms of dividends from this scheme at £500 a year, anything above that threshold would go to the government coffers, And our colleague, Jonathan Ford, has calculated that over 10 years, it could provide something like 25 billion quid to the Treasury at the very least. So, Robert, in sum, a big tax rise for businesses then. I think this is the key point. Actually, 
in what I thought was generally quite a cleverly worked out set of policy appeals to the country. I think they've left one open goal in this. I think the notion of saying, you know, workers should be put on boards, that workers should get a share of the company they work for. These are going to be popular policies and they're going to go down well and the Conservatives are going to have to answer them. But the one opening they left the Conservatives in this policy was the one that you and Jim were just mentioning, which is that actually they'll take 10% of a company on the premise of giving it to the workers. But actually, the bulk of that money is going to go to the government. So they're going to take the money saying we're giving it to the workers, but actually they're not. Secondly, the workers don't actually get to the share themselves. It's put into a pot, a sort of social fund within the company. So the workers don't get to own these shares themselves. They get a bung of up to £500 a year. Now, £500 a year is not to be sniffed at if you're on the average wage. But the point is, I think when they pitch this as we're doing this for you and then people find out that actually most of the money is going elsewhere, that's created an opening, which means it's possible for the Conservatives to come up with a strategy that says we're also going to create a workers fund. But unlike Labour, we're going to give you all the money and it will still be a lot cheaper for companies because they're not seeking the extra business taxes attached to it. And on the business tax point. It's worth noting that Labour is also proposing to massively increase corporation tax, not to some outrageous level, but up from the current 19% to 26%, I think it is. So that's a very, very big rise for businesses. And as Jim says, it's at a point where Brexit is there to threaten the economy. And I do think Labour has to tread a line. It's gained a lot of confidence from the last election that actually having radical economic policies could be a winner and that actually it's captured a zeitgeist, but it's capable of overdoing this. And if it actually begins to put together a series of policies that people can say, well, I know it sounds great, but it could really damage the economy, then they could be in some difficulty. I think that's a very good point, Robert, because at the very end of John McDonnell's speech, there's a line that's had a lot of attention, which essentially is said, the greater the mess we inherit, the more radical we'll have to be. And when you look at that, Jim, this speaks to what worries business and many voters so much about a potential Corbyn government, is that often what they say now sounds all right, doesn't sound mm. too radical, but what will they actually do when they get in office? So this And especially when you mix that in with the threats of deselection and Dawn Butler saying that the 1980s in Liverpool, when it was run by a loony left council, had been great, and this sense of revolutionary zeal and total intolerance for centrists, people who aren't enthused by the project, and all the rest of it. There, there is that danger of overreach. And I think as well the general public... They do like to be bribed. Let's not skip around that. The Conservatives were very good at doing that in 2015. Well, and Labour was very good at doing that in 2017 with a very heavy retail offer. But even though, as we know, typically voters don't follow policy or politics that closely, half of them don't even know who John McDonnell is, there is a sense that the public do know that you don't get out and out. And they sort of smell that even when politicians are promising them the earth and, and radical stuff, they sort of sense in their bones that well, maybe there will be a perverse consequence somewhere. I do think people will have left Labour conference feeling very buoyed up, feeling very good about themselves, feeling there is an opportunity. But if you do take a step back from this, you come back to the opinion polls point, which is where we started. The current government is an absolute shambles. It has not been able to negotiate a Brexit policy with members of Theresa May's own hand-picked cabinet. She can't even win her own cabinet round. This government is an absolute stasis. It doesn't know what it's doing. And you have an opposition party which is still behind it exactly. in the polls. Oh, and I mean, this is a massive, massive moment for Labour. It should be streets ahead. And that ought to worry them a little. Because everyone wrote them offers kind of fringe loons, especially when Corbyn first took over, and people were gobsmacked by how well they did last year. The fact that they are pretty much level pegging in the polls has amazed so many people that they are now giving a grudging respect to McDonnell and Corbyn, but we should stop and think, where should an opposition party be right now? 
and they ought to probably be in terms of pulling at least miles ahead. And finally, Jim, this brings me on to Jeremy Corbyn's speech itself. These leadership speeches are always the key moment of party conferences. And in the past, Mr Corbyn's speeches have generally been a bit uncertain. They've been full of fluff. They've been a bit all over the place. The one he gave this year was clearly a marked change in that. It was quite coherent in terms that it had an analysis of the problems facing the country, but it also had a lot more conciliatory language. It said it's probably his most contrite words to date on the anti-Semitism row, though he still didn't apologise. And he also reached out to other people saying that Labour needs to be a broader church. He softened his position on Brexit. And the way it's been described was this was all about tackling the reasons people voted for Brexit, if not Brexit itself. What did you make of it? Yeah, exactly. So there was this element of clearing barnacles off the boat, to use that old Linton Crosby expression, saying he hates anti-Semitism. Although, as a digression, when Emily Thornbury in her speech gave an absolute tub-thumping condemnation of anti-Semitism and the whole room gave a standing ovation and everybody on the platform gave a standing ovation, only two people were sat down. One was in a wheelchair and the other was Jeremy Corbyn. I mentioned that as an aside. But anyway, in his speech, he said he hated anti-Semitism. He accepted that the Scripple incident had probably been caused by the Russian state. And yes, his overall message was this one of change. Britain doesn't need to be like this. I mean, the Labour Party right now really does own the change positive message. No doubt about it at all. And yes, the the membership absolutely adores Jeremy Corbyn. We come back once again to the question of whether under a different leader with the same manifesto, similar message, same sense of hope and change, might they actually be doing a bit better? I don't know the answer to that. I think we shouldn't give Jeremy Corbyn too much credit for, at the age of 69, being able to finally recognise that the Russians were behind the Skripal poisoning <laughs> and, the, and being against anti-Semitism. It's gradual improvements, it, 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 it is, I think, a measure of where we were that we consider this a positive development. I do think the one thing you had to notice, you couldn't avoid noticing at this conference, was the adulation that is being beginning to build up behind John McDonnell. The party really, really like him. If he had one more syllable in his name, they'd be singing the chant about him instead. But I don't know that he's actually a threat personally to Jeremy Corbyn because he's 65, he's had a heart attack. I don't think he is personally about to challenge Corbyn. But you couldn't help notice that he is there as almost the professional wing of the Labour leadership saying, OK, let's get rid of all the rubbish, let's get rid of all the noises, let's focus on what we're about. And I think what we're going to keep seeing over the next year is the rise of McDonaldism, by which I mean professionalisation, stop wasting time on extraneous issues, focus on the big picture. And I think we're going to see him becoming even more important and influential in Labour's campaign and its approach to opposition. Next week, it's the Conservative Party's turn to have its annual gathering. And much like the Labour lot, it's the same two big questions, Brexit and leadership. Boris Johnson kicked things off nicely with another 4,000-word opus on why Theresa May needs to chuck checkers and take a different Brexit approach. But he's not yet saying that Theresa May needs to be chucked, just her policies. So throughout the gathering in Birmingham, it's going to be these two questions dominating. George Parker has a sort of feel of history repeating itself once again with... Boris producing this article, which didn't really say anything new. It's the same things he's been saying about Chequers ever since he resigned from the government earlier in the summer. He doesn't seem to be quite ready to say the next decisive thing, which is, Theresa May, you need to go. 
Yeah, I, I wonder whether we should all have a collective vow of silence when it comes to covering Boris Johnson's utterances. Bearing in mind... The Telegraph certainly is. Bearing, bearing in mind the Telegraph is paying, what is it, between five and 10,000 quid a column to say exactly the same thing in different ways week after week after week. No, you're right, there's nothing new in his plan for Brexit. As you say, we're still waiting for him to sort of do the big Theresa May must-go moment, but... I've always had doubts about whether the Eurosceptics actually really want to get rid of Theresa May before the big moment. I think they'd much rather she was a human shield, get us over the line on Brexit next March, and then come along and try to lead us to a bright sunlit Brexit uplands after she's gone. Boris's alternative plan for Brexit is the one that's been doing the rounds from the IA, which is a right-wing think tank, produced their plan A+. And essentially, it's the Canada model. So Michel Barnier in his Brexit slides, everyone loves to talk about with all the different models. There's the Norway-esque, the softer model, or the Canada, which is the harder Brexit model. And in some ways, it is the more pure form of Brexit. It's the one that most easily meets what was outlined in the 2016 referendum in terms of borders, money and control of laws. But it's got two big issues with it. One is the Irish border question, which Boris essentially says in this article, it's not a problem, there's ways around it, everyone's making too big a fuss. And the second thing is manufacturing that would disrupt just-in-time supply chains and cause some issues for Britain's manufacturing jobs. But he doesn't seem to tackle either of those. Again, the arguments aren't developing, it's just repeating the same things over again and hoping it'll gain more currency. Well, exactly. Well, there's no answer to those questions you've just outlined. That's the problem. And, um, I've done an interview with Greg Clark, the business secretary today, where he makes like, this point. He says when Boris Johnson talks about Canada, he talks about a free trade agreement as if it's the best thing since sliced bread. It would be the first free trade agreement in history where you actually erect barriers because we have a free trade at the moment, of course, with the European Union. An FTA along Canada model will introduce all kinds of friction at the borders, whether it's rules of origin checks, product regulatory checks, and it disrupts and, in the view of Greg Clark, could devastate manufacturing industry in this country. So Boris Johnson might wish away the awkwardness of that and indeed imagine there may be some technological solution that no one else has found to sort out the question on the Northern Ireland border. But you keep coming back to the same problem. It would be bad for the union and it would be bad for British manufacturing. And that is the dilemma that Theresa May is grappling with ahead of the Tory conference. The most remarkable thing, Miranda Green, that he said in this piece, I thought, was the idea that we need to scrap the withdrawal agreement and essentially start again. So we've gone through this tortuous process over the last year and a half to edge towards compromises, doing a deal on citizens' rights, doing a deal on withdrawal payments, agreeing a transition period. Boris essentially wants to tear that all up and go back to square one, which is quite ironic because Conservative HQ's message about Labour this week has been, don't trust Labour, they want to go back to square square one on Brexit, which is exactly what half their MPs now seem to be advocating. Well, that's right. The only thing you can say really about these Boris pronouncements, endlessly repeating that he still doesn't like the Chequers plan, is that he's clearly much happier out of the cabinet and repeating this endlessly than he was in the cabinet, where unfortunately they are confronted daily with the the pesky realities of trying to find some sort of plan that works. When it comes to this idea of the IEA plan that's been put on the table this week, outlining what Canada Plus might actually mean, it seems to me watching the Brexiters tour various broadcast studios this week, they're incredibly grateful to this think tank, because at least they now have something that they can push forward because their absence of a plan of their own was so embarrassingly obvious before. But as you've said, it doesn't solve these two key problems. On the manufacturing disruption, 
We know what Boris Johnson's attitude is to, to business and it's unrepeatable on a family podcast. So, you know, I don't think you'll get any constructive attitude from him this week at the Tory party conference. What is going to be interesting is whether he speaks to the Tory party faithful in the coming few days in such a way as to make it clear that May's future is now on the line and that Chuck Checkers actually means Chuck May. And this is really the key point because I think there's a growing sense, and this is something I've written about this weekend, that this is probably Theresa May's last conference as Prime Minister. She may have one more in her, but there's a general sense from across the party that she's going to get them over the Brexit line, hopefully. And at that point, the men in grey suits who have look as if they're going to be Michael Howard and Oliver Letwin, according to the papers today, will come to her and say, Thank you very much. Job done. Now, can you please move out the way and bring someone else in who can try and restore our ailing fortunes? But as George was saying earlier, the Brexiters have been very reluctant to actually say that because, first of all, Theresa May is surprisingly popular in the country among Middle England. They still prefer her massively to Jeremy Corbyn. And there's this grudging respect for her. If you were to change her now, which may be their only thing if they want to get rid of the Chequers plan, you could throw the whole thing into chaos and possibly result in no Brexit at all, or even a massively softer Brexit. So I can see why they're reluctant to say, if Theresa May won't dump checkers, then we need to dump Theresa May. But can they really just keep banging on with the same old stuff about checkers? Well, it's working for them because it's blaming somebody else for their inconsistencies. inconsistencies. Exactly so. And so I tend to agree with George that they'd much prefer to keep her as a human shield up to, but not beyond perhaps, the 29th of March next year. And then she also can then be made to carry the can forever after for the flaws of the withdrawal agreement and for the failures to point away beyond that. Michael Gove's gone quite quiet, it seems Suspiciously quiet. Suspiciously quiet. And I think it always rewards us to keep an eye on what he's up to in this particular saga. And he has been the person who's been keeping a lot of the backbenches on side for this idea of just get over the line, just get beyond March 29th, and then it's all up for grabs to build a Brexit in that's our true vision rather than this ugly compromise that pleases no one that is checkers. So, you know, there may still be a lot of efforts going on behind the scenes to stop the conference becoming bloody for May, but some of it will be to do with her own ability to project a calm, continued leadership up to, but probably not beyond 29th March. Yeah, I mean, the conference is inevitably going to be, going to be bloody for Theresa May. And, you know, I've been talking to people this week who say the message coming out of number 10 is this conference is just something you have to get through. And the other thing I think, Seb, that you and I have been picking up as well from within the sort of Downing Street circle is the idea, as Amanda was saying, maybe this is going to be her last conference and maybe she'll quit after March 2019. And in a way, that plays into the whole Michael Gove scenario, doesn't it? That Michael Gove says the big game is to be played after we leave when the real negotiation on the trade negotiations take place. And therefore, you'll need a new leader, in brackets, Michael Gove, to take (laughs) over. And... I find it really interesting. I mean, David Liddington, the de facto deputy prime minister, as we always call him, gave an interview to the uh, Spectator where he was asked whether he thought that Theresa May's boss should carry on until the next election. And he said she will decide in due course what she wants to do. But for now, she's focusing on the job in hand. I mean, how lukewarm is that? From a loyalist as well. Yeah, from a real May loyalist. And so you wonder, well, they aren't sending out signals that this will be her last conference and that she will be gone sometime in the spring or summer of 2019. The only thing I wonder about is whether we're all being played a bit here, because (laughs) if you want to get Theresa May through the conference and through the awful autumn that lies ahead of her and trying to get the deal and get it through Parliament, 
if you can persuade your party that actually she's only there to get you through to March 2019 and then someone else can take over, that in a way quells the immediate pressure for her to be ousted now. And I just wonder whether there's a bit of a double bluff going on here, because imagine the albeit unlikely scenario from where we are at the moment, that she somehow negotiates a deal in Brussels, which people say is impossible. And then she comes to Parliament and against all expectations, she manages to get it through. And Britain leaves in March 2019. And as you say, there is a residual respect for Theresa May in the public after her statement in Downing Street after the Salzburg humiliation. Just anecdotally, you hear lots of people saying actually it was very well judged. She's standing up for Britain. Good on her. And you just wonder whether actually at the end of it, she'll have come through the fire and maybe she will have a bit more fuel in the tank. Maybe the people around her will say, well, hang on, let's keep her going rather than plunge ourselves into another internecine battle over the future of Europe in a Tory leadership contest. I think there's a really good chance of that, the sense that once you get a deal, once we've actually left the EU, it will be a slightly cathartic moment for the party and the country and that, you know, everyone said from the beginning it's not going to work, she's not going to get a deal, she's been too rigid, Theresa May is unsuited for this, but if she actually does do it, there will be that sort of national sigh of relief that we've left the EU, Miranda, and that actually we have a slight new lease of life, but the fund fundamental issues are, which is Theresa May has really struggled to put forward a domestic reform vision. She's really struggling to lead her party on many issues. She's still not a good TV performer. And a lot of her MPs, I still don't think really like her or sort of they respect her, but they don't see her in a leader in the way they did with David Cameron. So those fundamentals aren't going to change. No, they're not. And I think that brings us to the most interesting thing, really, which is the kind of other discontent inside the Tory ranks as they approach conference, which is what is the Conservative Party for now? You've got these really interesting sort of two sides developing, people like Robert Halfen and indeed May herself, talking all the time about blue collar conservatism, how you keep those people who voted leave in the Brexit referendum on side, because a lot of them did go to the Conservatives in the 2017 general election. These are the marginal seats that will matter, because you've got a Labour Party that's managed very, very cleverly to kind of harness that discontented working class feeling again with its Brexit compromise and in other ways. You've got lots of pollsters saying, hey, look what's going on now. You've got a whole generation up into their 30s who rent housing and don't own it, who have gone away from the Conservatives. Is that permanent? How can you get them back? It's this idea that the Tories don't have a domestic policy agenda that speaks to the mood of the country at the moment. And you've then got other figures inside the Conservative Party. I'm thinking of Sam Gima this week saying, but this isn't what the Tory party should be at all. We should be the unashamedly pro-business, pro-market, pro-freedom, pro-individualism party. Or who, who on earth are we as we stand before the electorate? So can May resolve these tensions? Maybe not. Maybe what has to happen is that you get an undefined blind Brexit and then you get a real battle about what the Conservative programme is and that will determine what sort of Brexit it is as well. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I spoke to someone senior in the government who said to me about this, given how radical Jeremy Corbyn is, it gives us a license to be more radical too, particularly on the supply side. His prescriptions might be nutty, but he is identifying the right problems. And I think that's very much where things are, George, in the pretenders to the throne will 
no doubt be very carefully outlining their thoughts on this. So people like Jeremy Hunt, Sajid Javid, as we mentioned, Michael Gove, Penny Morden, Dominic Raab. The list goes on of all the people who are limbering up to run for the leadership whenever Theresa May moves on. They're all going to be looking at this idea of where the future of conservatism lies as well as their own personal platform. I think that's true. I mean, the Tory conference will just be a beauty parade, really, of people flaunting their leadership credentials and staking out positions not just on Brexit, as Miranda was saying, but on this really big question, which we would be talking about to the exclusion of almost everything else if it wasn't for Brexit, which is what on earth is the future of British capitalism and how does the Tory party fit into that debate? Because we've been at the Labour Party conference, which was brimming with ideological self-confidence that they are winning the arguments in some of the prescriptions business hate and might look absolutely off the scale according to a traditional viewpoint. But nevertheless, the Labour Party is very confident, whereas, as Miranda was saying, the Conservative Party is racked with doubt about how they respond to this generational crisis in capitalism. And do they become Corbyn light, as Robert Halfen's been suggesting, or do they stay true to their Thatcherite free market credentials? All those things will be up in light to the Conservative Party conference, because in the absence of a strong leader, all this stuff is up for grabs. And we really don't know, as Miranda says, what this Conservative government is about, other than trying to deliver the will of the people on Brexit, even if lots of people now don't really think the will of the people is much to look up to, really. And finally, Miranda, I think one thing you are also going to see is the weakness within the cabinet as well, that when you look at the people who are in key portfolios, there are people who are underperforming, clearly not delivering. You know, Chris Grayling is the classic example who comes to mind, who's the transport secretary, who has enjoyed scandal after scandal on the railways and still there. And people think, well, why is he in this position? And when you look at those big speeches in the hall, I think it will become acutely aware that what Theresa May really should be thinking about doing is particularly particularly if she gets a Brexit deal and gets through this year, is some kind of reshuffle to get rid of some of what might be politely described as the deadwood in her cabinet and bring up some of the younger, fresher faces. Because Jeremy Corbyn has done this very well by bringing in a whole new slew of people who refresh the party, while a lot of people in Theresa May's cabinet have been at the front line of British politics for almost 15 years. Yes, there is some deadwood that needs clearing out. I don't think yet another reshuffle solves the problem at all in any way. I fervently hope as a citizen and a voter that the next upcoming generation of the Tory party is better than the one that's sitting around the cabinet table at at the moment. But I remain to be convinced of it. And I also remain to be convinced about this horde of talent on Corbyn's front bench, to be honest with you. The Tories go into this conference sort of slightly cheered by a YouGov poll, which gives them a six point lead over Labour. Is that real? I think actually, if you look at most of the polling over the last year, what you find is a massive victory for the don't knows or neither of the above. And I don't think either party is looking in strong shape. And I don't think this conference is particularly going to resolve that either. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, Jim and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard on this podcast and would like more from the FT, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.